0: I'm John Fort. You're listening to CNBC's Tech Check. Our show is live weekdays at 11 a.m. Eastern. Listen in.
1: Good Wednesday morning. Welcome to Tech Check. I'm Carl Quintanilla with John Fort and Julia Borston. Deirdre Bosa is off today. Uh, Today, global risk skirting a rebound, the latest on Russia-Ukraine tensions and its impact on your portfolio. Then the tech sector may still be in, quote, growth purgatory, but some names might have bottomed. Our first guest this hour breaks down stocks you might be targeting in tech. And then later, Elon Musk emails CNBC. That exclusive exchange and the rift between the White House and Tesla is
0: coming up, John. Yeah, and let's start with correction in stocks. The Nasdaq now lower by more than half a percent, giving up early gains Dom Chu's got more on the mega cap meltdown we've been seeing with Fang names now more than 20%
2: off their high, Stop? So John, I mean we started off looking like we might catch a bit of a bounce after yesterday's sell-off. However, it has now brought that Nasdaq trade at least the biggest ones in the Nasdaq, the Nasdaq 100 as represented by the QQQ ETF. You can kind of see here over the course of the past year just how the trading patterns has been. Over here now though, if you look at the way things have shaped up, that QQQ is now back into that, that area where we're roughly 18% below the highs that we saw, the record highs earlier this past year. And then the S&P 500 back down about 11% below its record highs. So, again, in that so-called correction territory that some traders look at. Within that technology overall trade, there have been certain pockets of isolated real weakness in that. One of them is in some of these internet or, or kind of e-commerce related names. The First Trust Dow Jones Internet ETF, ticker FDN, is one of the bigger ETFs that tracks it. It's now down Just about a percent on the day so far. But what's important here is that downside that we've seen over the course of the last several months has been due in large part to big weightings in companies like Amazon.com, also Alphabet and Meta platforms and Netflix in particular. Some of the bigger weightings in this particular ETF. So it speaks to that FANG trade and that weakness there. Within other parts of technology, that weakness continues on a near to medium term as well. If you look at certain ETFs that track basically cloud computing, that's the orange line right here. We've seen a sharp pullback in some of those names. And then, of course, we've talked so much about that Arc Innovation ETF, Kathy Woodstock picking with regard to that particular transformative innovation type company. Those are now down 55% over the course of the last year. So some of those growth pockets really continuing to seeing weakness. And then Carl, financial technology, probably front and center for many of those growth trades that have seen a lot more to the downside than some of their peers. If you look at that fintech trade overall, it's the big names like PayPal, also the company formerly known as Square, Block Inc. Those ones are down big over the course of the last year. And then Affirm Holdings very much a hot buy now, pay later trade at one point has now come off sharply as well. So many parts of that growth trade very much out of favor right now. It's, it'll be interesting to really see when people say, hey, Maybe it is a good value trade at this point, guys.
1: That's exactly what we're about to talk about, Dom. Thank you very much. A good lead into our next guest, who admits that tech may still be in a bit of a growth purgatory, but highlights some stocks uh, that may have bottomed. B of A, head of U.S. equity and quantitative strategy, Savita Subramanian, joins, joins us this morning. Savita, what a treat for us. Good to see you again. Likewise. Thanks for having me. So you say buy high free cash tech. Uh, maybe you can yes. explain it.
3: Yeah, let's talk about it. So, I I mean, I think this is where the quant work can actually help. Um, So what we found for tech companies is that valuation is actually not necessarily a great buy or sell signal, but what you don't want to do. Is by companies that are in the process of derating. And these are what we would call kind of the value traps or the growth purgatory um, companies that, you know, were trading at very, very lofty multiples, but are now starting to see some risks. And that's exactly where the, the overall tech sector is, especially some of the higher growth names. So, what do you want to look for within tech to know that it's time to buy? Well, what we found is that the cheapest companies tend to outperform. So once they're finished with their derating cycle, but they're still producing lots of healthy free cash flow, those are the companies that generally outperform to the tune of, you know, this is a a great strategy within tech. Cheap tech can actually outperform the market, but you really need to look for bottomed out, really cheap tech. So our view is, Screen the, screen the tech sector for free cash flow yield. Look for the companies that are, you know, still generating a strong and visible stream of free cash flow, but aren't necessarily, um, you know, still in that downward spiral. Um, and that right. would leave us with some of the more boring names in the sector.
1: <laughs> so, for example...
3: So for example, I mean, this is not your, your internet tech. It's not your, you know, sort of exciting long duration by the dream growth tech. It's more like your yieldy cash return tech companies. And it's, you know, we find these names in semis and software, um, you know, in IT services, but they're definitely not the sort of darling tech stocks that, that we've, um, you know, sort of seen in this meteoric landslide. I think what's interesting is that, You know, when you look at the long-duration tech companies, and I call it long-duration because really what you're doing is you're paying today to get all your money way out in the future. And these companies, as you would expect, you know, using bond math, are much more hurt by uh, a move in interest rates or a move in the discount rate. Look at this year. We've seen, you know, um, something like a 50-basis point increase in nominal rates. We've seen the equity risk premium increase by about 25 basis points. So the companies that are getting hurt, are the ones that are more impacted by that rising discount rate. And I know you've talked about this on your program before, but I think the risk is we're not at a point where the market is adequately pricing in the moves that the Fed is likely to make. The market's not adequately pricing in the moves and, you know, in inflation in the 10-year. In the so we think that there might be more to go for, for some of these longer-duration tech companies.
4: So Savita, uh, Julia here, I thought your comparison to what happened to tech back in 2000 was really interesting. And I'm wondering how you're looking at that comparison to what's happening right now and how that's shaping your outlook on when all of the tech sector becomes an opportunity to buy.
3: Yeah, yeah, it's a great question. I mean, think about it. From March 2000 to September 2002, we saw P.E. multiples for the tech sector compressed by 60%. We've only seen 12% from peak to trough multiples today. So there's probably more to go for the overall tech sector. That said, tech companies today in the S&P are very different from what we saw in 2000. These are more, you know, these are, are real companies generating healthy earnings. They're not... The non-earners, the, um, you know, the, the really speculative tech companies that we saw back in 2000. Here's the key though. I think that you can't just ignore technology because even back in 2000 and 99, 2000, if you looked at the IPOs that took place in 99, one out of four of the IPOs of 1999 are now these blue chip mega cap tech companies. So you don't want to ignore tech summarily. I mean, there's, de- there's definitely opportunities within the sector. And I think that's where, you know, looking at free cash flow, looking at earnings visibility, uh, looking at the quality of the business model are, are going to be really important. But one out of four, not great odds. So I think it's still important to be selective here.
4: But but to that point about the one in four, is there a sense of which of the companies of this younger generation could be that 25 percent that break
3: out to be the next generation of giants? Absolutely. So this, and this is where I defer to our fundamental analysts. I'm a macro person, so I just look at this all with a broad lens. But I think from an idiosyncratic perspective, you rightly point out that, you know, all tech companies are not created equal. Even Fang, I mean, we call it Fang, but there are very different companies within that cohort. So I think that's where you really want to take advantage of the fundamental analysts' uh, expertise. I mean, at B of A, I rely on our fundamental analysts to tell me which companies are, are likely to outperform and which are likely to um, to see more macro risk. But on a broad basis, what we found is that you generally don't want to buy even the high-flyer growth stocks when they're on that D-rating cycle. And our view is that right now, a lot of things are getting priced into tech. We're moving from an environment where we have Falling interest rates to rising interest rates. We're moving from an environment where we had no inflation to rampant inflation. So lots of things are changing in the macro front. And I think it's going to take a little bit of uh, a little while for, for tech to absorb all of that and you know, to really see a bottoming for the overall sector.
0: Savita, we, we tend to talk about the dot com bust as if it were really about these insubstantial companies taking major hits. But I mean, if you bought Cisco at the peak in 2000, you still haven't recovered, right? And, and uh, there are other companies as well. Uh, Microsoft took a big hit back then. I noticed uh, in, in the screening that you're talking about, there are some not so boring companies that make the cut <laughs> as well, like Nvidia, Apple, Alphabet, and Microsoft. Um, Cisco in there too, I guess, you know, 22 years later, they probably count as boring in a lot of people's book. <laughs> So um, <laughs> yeah. what about what about that? Because those stocks, particularly NVIDIA, have had a very nice run so far. But you think um, that's still worth including here?
3: So I do. I mean, like I said, I'm looking at this from a broad perspective. And what we found is that the hit rate for companies that are in that bottom quartile of the tech sector by free cash flow yields, Tend to outperform more than underperform. So it has been a good kind of, you know, this is a screen where you really want to bottom pick and, and, and try to find uh, interesting ideas. I mean, to your point though, and, and I think that, um, you know, I, I think what was also interesting about 2000 was that, you know, it really took a long time for the sector to bottom out. And I think it took a few things to, that that needed to happen. First of all, Everybody forgot about tech by 2010. I mean, nobody was even asking about it when it came to client calls. People were still more focused on financials and you know some of the the, the leaders in the 2000 to 2007 period. Um, second of all, a lot of companies went away, and third of all, companies really consolidated capacity and started returning cash to shareholders. So maybe those are some of the signs that we need to see from you know, like you said, the high flyers that have had great runs, and you know, now looks like. They're they're screening as very attractive from a valuation basis, but maybe you still need to see more of that consolidation, cash return, et cetera, in order to get uh, you know, really bullish on the on the sector. I will tell you this though. I think that, you know, tech is one of these sectors where Picking stocks is, you know, probably more important than in other sectors, and time horizons can really help. So, you know, I think one of the things that's been really great—I mean, this year doesn't feel great—but one of the things that's been great about this year is that volatility really underscores opportunities. And if you have a long enough time horizon I and mean, you can ride out a little bit of macro volatility—I mean, obviously, not all of us have that—you um, know, I think that these are. This is a time to buy some of these really inexpensive tech companies that show up in our screens. Maybe we'll continue to see volatility as the year progresses, but, you know, should, should eventually, um, you know, rise above the market as we've seen in prior cycles.
1: Right. Um, it's a good framework. And hopefully next time we can talk a bit about uh, some macro and certainly the way geopolitics may or may not have changed the playbook, Savita. But it's always good to see you. Thanks so much. Likewise. Thanks.
0: Let's talk some Palo Alto Networks now. The security company jumping this morning after reporting beats on the top and bottom lines for the fiscal second quarter. And posting better than expected guidance for uh, the current period. The strong guidance is in part due to integrating the more than a dozen acquisitions that it's made over the past five years. Uh, the boost prompting an upgrade from JP Morgan to neutral from underweight, calling it well positioned among competitors to vie for the cloud security opportunity, Julia.
4: And RBC's Brad Erickson joins us to break down the future of advertising mid-Apple's crackdown. And later, CNBC's Brian Schwartz tells us what he heard from Elon Musk about being ignored by President Biden. It's a big hour of Tech Check, and we are just getting started.
0: Let's get a gut check on Rackspace, the multi-cloud services company's latest results, beating the street, delivering record bookings in Q4, but the guide for the current quarter comes up way short, both revenue and EPS below consensus, shares tanking to start the morning down by 25%, Julia.
4: And meantime, John Washington's big tech crackdown continues. Regulators keeping a close eye on Apple and his App Store practices. The Senate advancing legislation to increase competition on the platform. CEO Tim Cook claims the bill will hurt user privacy. But our next guest argues that Apple is using privacy as a cloak to protect his App Store economics. Joining us now is RBC Capital's Brad Erickson. Brad, thanks for joining us. Why don't you lay out your thesis of the likelihood of regulation or the the threat of regulation forcing Apple to make changes and what that could mean for the rest of the ecosystem?
5: Yeah. Hey, Julia. And first off, let me apologize for my voice. I promise it sounds a lot worse than it is. But um, yeah, what I think is going on right now, which is really interesting, is Apple, as kind of the dominant mobile ecosystem provider here in the U.S., at least, and certainly globally as well, plays a unique role where they actually sit on top of, effectively, all these large uh, internet players, right? And what we've learned recently is that Facebook relies incredibly on third-party data to target, effectively, for its ad business. And, And what's interesting is, obviously, is while we won't speculate on Apple's future aspirations about around potentially things like advertising. What we can say is is that that privacy is certainly serving a, a, as a nice barrier that they can they can put up that can impede or potentially impair companies like Facebook's ability to to target users for advertising. So uh, we're we're certainly not saying we have all the conclusions, but I think we're at a place where we can start to ask some questions that 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 uh, pose some some troubling trends for the social media companies in the future.
4: Yeah, well, Brad, it's interesting because you have regulators balancing two things. On one hand, they they want to protect users' privacy, and there has been a, a big push towards that. On the other hand, they want to re- rein in the big tech giants and make sure that the likes of Apple, uh, you know, they're not, the companies like Apple are not using their heft inappropriately. So I guess the question is, is how do you think, these social players, such as the, the metas of the world, or are, are going to be able to navigate this? And is this going to put them at an even greater disadvantage when it comes to fighting for ad dollars?
5: Uh, yeah, I think I think that's kind of the point we're raising. Clearly, I mean, a couple of trends have emerged, um, you know, post the Facebook print, a few, you know, a month or so ago where, where the stock blew up. I think what we've learned is, is obviously, First party data is paramount, right? When you think about Google, you think about Amazon, even companies like Walmart uh, leveraging their own first party data sources, those are the most insulated from exogenous forces like Apple coming in and removing that signal loss. Um, but second, you know, I think user privacy is something that is going to increasingly be regulated in the future. And so I think what we were speaking to in the note you're referencing is that you know there there's other means of tracking and targeting and using data further up the stack so think ERP providers cloud CRM providers even wireless infrastructure companies wireless carriers all of the all of the tracking that could be useful for an ad platform like Facebook we think Third parties are trying to leverage uh, those that those data sources further up the stack, and it seems like those could potentially have risk down the road. We don't think that's where regulators' attention lies today, but we're pointing out that that's where this could this could go longer term.
0: Brad, by my count, it was six years ago that Apple laid out its vision for using differential privacy to essentially not hold uh, user data and be able to improve its software. And, uh, and AI without actually having to have it. I mean, we all saw Tim Cook in front of congressional hearings with, with all of that backdoor stuff and, and uh, you know, the government trying to get data from Apple. So it seems to me a lot of these social networks just didn't think that Apple would succeed or that Apple would have the power to do what they said they were going to do, but they said they were going to do this a long time ago. Is this just bad strategy on, on the social networks part that are being affected by this then?
5: Um, no, I wouldn't say that. I, I think, you know, the, the, the article from a day or two ago in the journal was talking about fingerprinting, particularly meaning that it's there, there are actually significant technological hurdles, software challenges that, that Apple is yet to overcome to be able to eliminate things like device fingerprinting, which, of course, the app tracking uh, transparency uh, software update was intended to eliminate Conceptually, but fingerprinting still exists because, of course, there's other limiting factors around what it would do to developers on the app ecosystem. So I think the takeaway is, is the tech here is far more complex than probably you and I can appreciate. Um, but it, and so that is to say that that Apple getting to where it wanted to go, say what you're referencing six years ago, it is is uh, not trivial. I guess is the best way to say it.
4: if we could just ask one really quick one on Shopify, just really quickly want to get your thoughts on how they or Amazon could be winners as they really leverage their first party data.
5: Uh, unfortunately, I can't really espouse an opinion on Shopify. I don't, I don't, I don't cover the stock. Unfortunately, um, we do cover Amazon. We are bullish on Amazon and, and a key piece of our thesis is the fact that You know, Amazon has the most user attention, customer attention in terms of online commerce, uh, certainly in the United States and growing outside of the United States. And so, uh, to the degree that they can continue to leverage that first party data to drive more ad dollars for better targeting, we think that's a, we think that's a winning formula longer term. So sorry, I can't speak to the Shopify, but. Um, yeah. Yeah.
4: Well, certainly a, a massive amount of value in all that data about intent. Brad, thank you so much for joining us and sharing your perspective here. Yeah.
1: Yep. As we go to break, uh, check out shares of Vertiv, uh, the latest company to be hit hard by inflation and supply chain issues. The data center infrastructure company down more than forty-four percent this morning. We're going to watch that as we go into the second half hour, and then Nasdaq closes in on a one percent loss. More tech check in a moment.
0: Welcome back to Tech Check. I'm John Fort with Carl Quintanilla and Julia Borston. NASDAQ falling about half a percent this morning after initially rebounding from yesterday, earlier in the session. It's down closer to a full percent now. We're going to keep an eye on that and the latest com- uh, comments from Elon Musk. But first, let's get to a news update with Rahel Solomon. Hey, Rahel.
6: Let's. Hi, John. Here's what's happening at this hour. Lowe's giving back much of its gains on strong quarterly results and increased guidance for this year. Lowe's shares were up more than 6% just after the open. That stock now up just about 2%. TJX shares on track for their worst one-day loss in nearly two years. The owner of TJ Maxx tumbling 7%. Sales were hit by temporary store closures and fewer customer visits during the Omicron surge. TJX shares are down 20% this year. Automaker Stellantis says that it made more than $15 billion in the first year after it was formed from the merger of Fiat Chrysler and Peugeot owner PSA Group. That's nearly triple what the individual companies earned in the year before they combined. Stellantis shares up more than 5% today. And Teneco stock nearly doubling this morning. Apollo Global taking Teneco private in a deal valued at more than $7 billion, and that includes debt. Carl, I'll send it back to you.
1: Rahel, thank you very much. Meantime, Elon Musk speaking out in some exclusive emails to CNBC. The CEO of Tesla accuses the president of ignoring the EV auto giant. Our own Brian Schwartz has that story, along with comments he's made about the SEC and short sellers.
7: Hey, Brian. Hey, all right. Thanks for having me. So talk about this conversation. How did it happen? Yeah, you know, we were looking into this. Uh, we were told it's this feud between... Uh, president Joe Biden, his administration, and Elon Musk. And, uh, you know, we shot Mr. Musk an in, in email. And, you know, to be honest with you, Carl, I really didn't think he was going to respond. And he did. And he came forward with these comments exclu- exclusively to CNBC about, you know, where he sees this kind of back and forth with the president. And he's convinced that the uh, President Biden is ignoring Tesla. Now, the White House, you know, when they spoke to us, Kind of hinted that that's not really entirely accurate, that there are White House officials who are in touch with Tesla. But the White House didn't rule out that they're kind of in this, uh, you know, battle with Musk himself. And I think that's really important to remember here. This apparent, you know, fight between Biden, the White House and Musk may not necessarily have all to do with Tesla. I mean, I think it's really becoming a little bit more personal than that with the billionaire CEO, And we'll have to see how this all plays out. But it was really intriguing that he got back to us and gave us these comments about this kind of developing feud. He'll dispute if it's a feud. But I'm going to say here, it's definitely one of the bigger feuds that Joe Biden is in with a CEO, at least to to, to my knowledge. Well, it's kind uh, of,
0: uh, Brian, it's kind of blatant disrespect i guess i would say on both on both ends of it i mean it's weird the white house won't even say tesla or or speak elon musk's name it's like he's voldemort or something in some cases and then elon musk i mean you never know what he's going to do when he takes a stage or when he's on twitter so when you're talking about you know reputation uh protection uh, i can understand why somebody might be
7: cautious right yeah, you're, you're right. There's there's two sides to everything. Exactly what you're saying here. The White House uh, seems to have this this issue with him and his tweets. Maybe the fact that Tesla uh, isn't part of a union. And uh, meanwhile, Elon Musk just want, is, is saying that he wants to seat at the table. It's also, of course, these other issues, right? The Securities Exchange Commission, the SEC, is in this kind of legal battle with Tesla. So, you know, meanwhile, in the White House, there is some concern that if Musk was, in fact, invited to any of these meetings or a meeting one on one with the president, that he could do something to embarrass the administration. We've seen his tweets. We all know what he has said. We've seen what he has said to us. So it could be a problem if they even went down the road, the White House and bring him into the fold.
4: Brian, I thought it was so interesting that he he reassured you and wanted to reassure uh, the the administration that he wouldn't do anything embarrassing. But I wonder if you look at sort of the fundamental underpinning issues, how much you think this battle is about unions and how much you think it's about the issue about tax credits?
7: You know, I I do think it's a little bit of both. I I think the the, I, I think from the White House perspective, Sure, they, they, they tell us they've engaged with Tesla. And, you know, we don't know exactly who they've spoken with there. Uh, you know, they're, we could look at the lobbyists and things like that another time. Um, but I, I do think it's a little bit of both. Listen, uh, the, the White House clearly likes to promote itself being linked uh, and, and supporting unions. I mean, the United Auto Workers Union supported Joe Biden when he ran for president. And then there's this issue, like you mentioned, with the credits. So I, I do think it's it's evenly split on that policy side. But I do also think they are very – the White House is watching what Elon Musk has to say about the president. There is no doubt about that. And so it's it's an interesting, you know, back and forth, right? It's a little bit of policy with the unions, the credits. And then there's the personal stuff as well that's that's brewing on Twitter and the things he he told us the other day.
1: Brian, richest man in the world. Uh, Market cap of the company dwarfs all of their rivals. They lead the industry in EVs. Why does he need this? Why does he – crave this, I guess, this nod from the White House. And I I, uh, I wonder if it has anything to do with the wave of competition that's going to come online next couple of years.
7: Yeah, you, you're probably right. And if you look back to his relationship with the last man who was in the White House, Donald Trump, he appeared to have a better relationship with him. You know, he would go to these these meetings, he would be he would be brought to the table on different things. Donald Trump raved about him at the time. And now things have changed. It's not that simple for Elon Musk to get in touch with the president of the United States, The one of the wealthiest um, people in the world. And, and then there's, of course, the competition side, right? You, you look who is going to the meetings, General Motors, Ford, they're creating electric vehicles. Musk's point is, well, look what we're doing here at Tesla. But of course, is that competition side where musk is seeing these bigger companies he's, he's not bigger than tesla but you know big uh, auto companies getting in with biden and he's not and that could, could create a competition problem for tesla w.
1: brian fascinating uh, absolutely riveting exchange between uh musk and and, and cnbc with your help uh, thanks for the clarity on it talk to you soon It's our brian Thank sports you.
4: meanwhile the pain in software continues take a look at monday.com falling more than 22% as its latest quarterly numbers disappoint the street. The stock is now trading below its IPO price from last summer. The co-founder and CEO joins us in just a few minutes. Don't go anywhere.
0: Shares of Monday.com getting crushed this morning, hitting new all-time low. The stock now down by more than 20%, even though quarter results mostly beat. Smaller loss than expected, better forecast, which really points to the high expectations for some parts of the software sector. Joining us now, Monday.com co-CEO Aaron Zinman. Uh, Aaron, great to have you. So, um, you know, tough stock reaction here, but tell me about uh, the velocity in the business in particular because customer ads, retention, and revenue are what really matter over time, right?
8: Yeah, thanks for having me. Uh, So, yeah, we had a great quarter and a great uh, fiscal year of 2021. Uh, The company grew by more than 90% uh, while generating free cash flow, which I think in our scale is pretty rare to see. Uh, So overall, you know, the company is performing very well. We're very happy with the results. Um, as you mentioned, the retention, meaning retaining our customers, helping them grow within the platform really, um, you know, stepped up this quarter and this year. So overall, the results were phenomenal. Um, you know, the, I think the whole tax sector is going through a few rough months. Um, there's some sort of a correction or changes in companies' valuations. Um, but we as a company, we're very focused on the long term. All the fundamentals and the metrics of the business are performing really, really well. Uh, so we're very focused on how we do things and what we do as a company.
0: So how much flexibility, how prepared are you operationally with cash on hand, uh, with, with the uh, amount of money you're spending to get through this period um, and, and keep uh, employees, uh, you know, your workers motivated? Because that's a lot of the ball game for a company your size.
8: Yeah, that's a great question. Uh, so we're in a great shape as a company because we, you know, raise a lot of money in the IPO, have more than 800 million in the bank. And as I mentioned, we're uh, cash flow positive. So that means the company generates cash, um, quarter over quarter. So we're not burning any cash and we still have a lot of reserves. So we're not really concerned about this. Um, and, you know, as a private company, our valuation was much lower. So the company is doing really well. We continue to grow. Um, and, and uh, generating free cash flow as we grow in such large percentages. Um, so all the fundamentals are really uh, in place.
4: Aron, I'm curious to hear about your product strategy going forward because you've introduced these two standalone products with standalone pricing, Canvas and WorkForms. And this is a different strategy than some of your rivals are taking, putting everything into one app with one price. Tell us why you're going in this direction and how many other services you can see Introducing down the line.
8: Yeah, so um, this uh, quarter we introduced two new products in addition to the Monday work, uh, Monday.com uh, work platform. Uh, basically, over time we want to create a product suite that we can offer to our customers. Um, our customers um, basically manage all the work processes and projects across all departments on top of Monday. And over time, we want to offer them more tools so they can spend um, more time using Monday product products. Those products will work seamlessly with one another. So transitioning from one product to another will be super easy. Um, and our customers use the platform for almost any use case. So it's really um, any use case, any scenario, any department can be used on Monday. And now with those additional tools, uh, we can help our customers even more with different aspects of work. So over time, we're going to introduce more tools and the money.com uh, products, suite will be able to offer them and solving almost any business need our customer is going to need.
4: But I think it's really interesting that you're charging individually for all of these new project products. And I'm wondering if you expect that additional fee for each of these uh, n- new introductions is going to be a growth driver or, or whether you risk just overwhelming your customers with additional choices of things that they have to pay for.
8: Yeah, so those products, um, we do charge for them independently. Uh, but the point is, is that customers, when they search for a specific tool, don't want to be overwhelmed by one tool that does everything. Um, you can look at, you know, the larger companies, uh, such as Microsoft, Atlassian, and other, and Google itself selling enterprise products, offer a pseudo product. And we also kind of being on the same trajectory, offering, uh, multiple products, uh, for our users. I think that focus brings a lot of value to customers that want to focus on different aspects of work. And as I've mentioned, moving between the tools is very seamless. Uh, So you get more value and each tool specializes in one aspect of work and you can move between them uh, without any problems.
0: Aaron, I wonder um, in terms of how the company is structured, uh, voting control, things like that, how prepared you are for this type of eventuality. there has been a lot of movement in software over the last couple of decades for founders to, to maintain control. What's your outlook on that? Because um, when, when stock prices are low, lots of people have opinions about what you should do.
8: Yeah, uh, so both my partner, Roy, and myself, um, you know, uh, have a significant chunk of the company. Also, our investors that have been with the company for a long time are big believers in the company vision and growth. And the institutional investor that um, joins through the IPO also really believe in the future of the company. So I don't see any concern about that. Uh, on the contrary, you know, investors are even more aggressive about the company, uh, the future, the potential that we have. We have such a huge market. Basically, every information worker, which is 1.3 billion, is a potential customer of monday Just think about this. The opportunity of growth here is um, unbelievable. So we're very focused on the future and the um, growth that we can achieve in the company. Um, I believe we're just getting started.
0: All right, Aaron, thank you, CEO of Money.
1: We are watching Bitcoin today, ticking higher on a bit of a down day. More tech check is back in just a moment. Let's get a gut check on a couple of chip names. B of A maintains buys on top picks Nvidia and AMD. They call Nvidia a gaming leader with a unique computing platform. That can address numerous growth opportunities. For AMD, the firm sees a solid roadmap ahead, some CPU share gains. B of a also expects supply to be constrained into the second half of this year, which could drive, quote, stronger for longer sales growth. Those stocks both lower by 20 percent on the year, but have obviously been huge outperformers long term. Uh, NVIDIA is up 5,000 percent, Julia, in the last decade.
4: And NASCAR President Steve Phelps joins us to break down the new technology fueling the sport and the league's latest gaming efforts. Tech Tech returns in just a few minutes.
1: Stocks are trying to trim their early session lows. Check out the Nasdaq, still within uh, about a 1% loss uh, all morning long, but down about 100 points. Uh, Less than 200 points, though, from that January 24th low, uh, John, of 13094. We're going to watch
0: that. Indeed. Now, let's speed things up, shall we? NASCAR is making more than just a left turn into digital media, heading full throttle into gaming, simulated racing even streaming with the new series premiering yesterday on Netflix. But what is next for the season ahead on the heels of Sunday's Daytona 500? Joining us now, NASCAR president Steve Phelps. Steve, uh, welcome. I I want to start with the fan basics, Uh, you know, being uh, mobile ticketing, uh, changes, upgrades you've made to the NASCAR app. When you're planning long term on fan engagement and quality of experience how is digital fitting in now, and how are you measuring progress?
9: Yeah, I mean, it's very important for us, John. You know, digital is uh, you know, obviously emerging everywhere and everything people do on an, on an everyday basis. So for us, we need to make sure that we are engaging the fans and, and meeting them where they are. And we think digital does that. Um, means a lot of things to a lot of different people, and where we do that uh, is purposeful, um, but it's, and it's working for us.
0: Um, now tell me how you look at strategy. You've got things like there's a a Roblox thing that you've done, which I guess is fun for a certain demographic that probably isn't your core. But then you've also got iRacing where you've got actual drivers who have these rigs where they're able to uh, compete digitally in um, an experience that's pretty close to the real thing. Why are those things important? Uh, What what data are you getting from that that's informing uh, how you plan for the future?
9: I mean, for us, it really is about engagement, right? I mean, fans where they are, you know, if, whether you're talking about Roblox or Faceland or Discord, opportunities for us to get younger and more diverse uh, is critical for us, like any brand, right? Um, iRacing is unique and special for us because, you know, essentially it is these crazy rigs um, that fans can can purchase, and they, they ultimately are just they're racing with each other in a virtual world. Um, and that's, that's fantastic for us because we want to take people and what they're doing in the virtual world and have that go back over to the physical world. Mm-hmm. iRacing does that specifically. So it is so real that you can, you know, what we what the iRacing people do is they map out these racetracks. So all of our racetracks, Daytona, even the LA Coliseum, frankly, where we raced uh, a couple of weeks ago, where we put a physical racetrack inside the LA Coliseum. We knew that would work because the iRacing people had actually mapped that out already for us, right? And then we had drivers that were driving on this virtual track. Um, and then, lo and behold, two months later, after we built the track, you know, we hosted an event there with sixty thousand people and had just a phenomenal, phenomenal experience in that iconic facility.
0: Like digital twinning, the other way around. You mentioned younger and more diverse. Give me an update on the more diverse piece of that, because you said that NASCAR is going to do outreach uh, to black fans, try to grow multicultural fan base. Um, How is that going? How are you measuring it? Uh, What do you want to do beyond what you've done already?
9: Yeah, I mean, for us, it really it's we have been trying to get younger and more diverse for a decade. Right. You can say it, um, but to do it's another thing. And I really the, the our intentions that we had or we were very intentional in trying to do that. It really started in in June of 2020 with the stance we took on social justice, the banning of the Confederate flag. And since that time, real action in diversity, equity, inclusion. And to your point, it's working. Um, That led to Michael Jordan becoming an owner, Pitbull becoming an owner. Um, In fact, we had four African-American owners at the Daytona 500, uh, either minority or or full owners. Uh, Michael Jordan, uh, Floyd Mayweather Jr., um, Brad Doherty, um, and um, there is another one. Um,
1: that's okay. Three's a lot. I, so,
9: no, it is. You, you can answer just back about four, the four. And, yes. and, 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 of course, my friend John Cohen, there you um, go. New York Racing John Cohen. So that's, it's working and from an ownership perspective. It's working, and it's working from a fan perspective, importantly, right? So if, if we think about where this sport is going – Um, diversity is playing a huge part in it. And, you know, we're doing it with our, as I said, with both our fan base, our ownership base, and and frankly, even with our employee base, it's intentional and it's very, very important for the, the overall success of the sport.
4: Steve, you mentioned that these uh, new initiatives are helping, the the digital initiatives are helping with diversity. But I'm curious how much these digital initiatives are driving revenue in and of themselves. You know, you're dropping NFTs, you have a big presence on Roblox, there's the iRacing. But do you see these becoming a meaningful piece of NASCAR revenue? Or is it all really about driving viewership and, and the value of those NASCAR rights on TV?
9: Well, to me, it's really the latter is more important. Um, if we're driving, uh, and we are driving revenue, um, it's not that it's not important, but for us, it's really about engagement, right? Engaging these younger fans, engaging these diverse fans, getting them to sample NASCAR where they are, so meet them where they are, sample, and then get them over to the, um, you know, over to the, real world or the physical world. And that manifests itself in television and digital and social um, engagement, and frankly, getting them to a racetrack. Um, Once you go to a racetrack, you want to come back. The sights and sounds and the experiences that you get there are unlike any other sporting event.
0: Nothing quite like the universe. Uh, Steve, (laughs) thank you. Steve Phelps, NASCAR president.
9: Thanks, guys.
4: And speaking of digital initiatives, looking ahead, Meta is hosting an event coming up in just a few minutes. CEO Mark Zuckerberg is expected to deliver the opening and closing remarks, focusing on the company's latest efforts with artificial intelligence and of course the metaverse. Tech Tech will be back after one more quick break.
1: One more thing before we go, and that's office space. The New York Times has a big piece today exploring how big tech is betting big on offices, spending billions of dollars to expand spaces, even as many in their workforce remain remote. Possible factors include the pace of hiring, the tight labor market, and a general sense that offices will, in fact, play a key role in the future of work. According to CBRE, in the last three quarters of 21, the tech industry leased 76 percent more office space than it did a year earlier, John. They mentioned Dash, Meta, Alphabet. Uh,
0: Look at Zoom today. 122. Used to be 565. (laughs) Yeah. But Carl, we got to be careful about this because just because a tech company is leasing office space doesn't mean it's going to be software developers only in there. Sometimes it's customer service, all kinds of things, different salaries, not necessarily that core tech worker that you think of uh, that's based in Silicon Valley.
4: And I also think it's, it's really interesting to see how some of these offices are spread out around the country. They want to make sure if there's talent to hire in Atlanta or in Austin, that they can have offices there and still capture some talent in this very tight labor market, Carl.
1: Yeah, really a lot of work being done on just how employment from the tech sector is moving eastward, as, as we all know. Dow uh, managing to un- unwind some losses here. Let's get to Sully in the half.
0: You've been listening to CNBC's Tech Check. You can always catch us live weekdays at 11 a.m. Eastern.